and welcome to The Point of Everything. Today on the show is Nisha Roo, who released her second album, Emotionally Magnificent, in October. She's announced that the project is finishing up now, a couple of months on, seeing it off with the, quote, last headline show ever, probably at the Workmen's Club this Friday, February 2nd. She posted a lengthy, interesting statement about it on Instagram. I'll read that now. I'll read out some of it now. Anyway, years ago, she writes, I remember seeing an update on Simple Kid's website that included a picture of him and the words, Simple Kid is working out what he wants to do with the rest of his life, or some familiar sentiment. I've thought about that a lot over the years. I think it's time to explore other things. There is never a time that seems easy to stop. It always feels like sustainable creative success is just around the corner, that you're waiting on a bus to speed you towards a new destination. However, those of us who have been in this game a long time are often faced with the realisation that the destination doesn't really exist, or when it does, no one knows how long it will last. I think I'd like to switch gears and take a paddle boat somewhere, nowhere in particular. I don't really care about success in the traditional sense. I do, however, care about peace and trying to be the best version of my creative self. Over the last few years, I've realized that the aspects of this work I value the most involve being in the studio, being with people I love and trust, and making something magic. I'm far more suited to this cocoon rather than the emerging butterfly stage of this vocation. Experiencing major losses last year reminded me of how emotionally exhausting this industry can be. Being solo is lonely, even though it obviously takes a village to make things happen, and I've been privileged to have support across many things. I could conceivably have a hiatus and not make such a boundary, but truthfully, I think I want to create space in my life for other things, ideas, projects, and also just to be. I've loved making this music and playing this music. I am so intensely grateful that people have written about my music, shared it with other people, or have supported me by coming to the shows and buying merch and records. I am also endlessly grateful to all the people I made music with. It would mean a lot if y'all could come on February 2nd and we see this thing out in style in Workman's. So that's a full statement. Lengthy, I know, but really, really interesting. Uh, Nisha is back on the podcast today. She was on an episode just a couple of weeks into the pandemic. TPOE 169. If you can bear to go back to, I think, April 2020 and listen back uh we're talking through the tracks of emotionally magnificent today and about why the nisha Roo project is coming to an end we're listening to the opening track sick girlfriend now it was part of an ep she released back when we talked in 2020 that has been subsumed since into this album now let's get into it here's nisha Roo on the tpoe podcast for the last time ever probably I got a sick girlfriend Something inside her head And now I live with her
first of all, I guess we'll talk about maybe the end of Nishiru. Your last headline show ever, probably, is on at the Workman's on February 2nd. Is this going to be the end of the Nishiru project? Is it the end of something else? Yes, I mean, this is the end of uh, the Nishiru project. Um, I think over the last while I've been thinking a lot about where my place is, I suppose, uh, in this in this industry or what my artistic sort of intentions are for for myself um and I kind of reached a point where I I felt like it was time to step away from it to to create a, a fresh start um and to kind of tear it down in place of seeing what could open up in its place and that's not necessarily even to say that a new musical project or something of that ilk. It's also just on a creative side, like what could happen in that space. And, you know, I've been doing this for over 10 years. And I was saying to someone, it's like you carry these various incarnations of yourself through, like all of those kind of come with you. You know, you're so many different people and you're so many different artists in the space of 10 years. I really believe that. And um, at the end of it, it's you're carrying the weight of all of that. And it's so wrapped up in in your identity that sometimes it's hard to sort of filter through and, and, and try to find the the spark of what really made you want to create and connect in the first place. I feel in this particular instance, I mean, people do it in a variety of different ways. Sometimes people step away for a while. Sometimes people create a new persona you know there's a there's a lot of different ways to kind of reset uh creatively but for me I know myself that I needed to tear it down to rebuild when did you decide that was it before the album came out was it in the creative process for the album I think that it had been sitting there as a thought and um, a possibility for quite a while, um, I would say about a year, and it was all sort of a combination of a multiple, a multitude of different kind of things. I was realizing that there were a lot of aspects of this industry. Or, or you know this this vocation that I I didn't connect with and I didn't enjoy, um, and I was struggling trying to find the the joy and excitement that I I was seeing other people around me experience, and I was also experiencing a lot of sort of crippling self doubt that I thought I had moved past, but was still kind of rearing its head. I feel like. Um, when I'm out being regular human, <laughs> I feel pretty uh, centered, uh, grounded. I feel good about what I'm doing and who I am and how I'm spending my time in this world. But, you know, throw a album campaign in there and I am a jittering mess. Uh, it, it can create a huge amount of... of um, insecurity you know you're battling with um 
putting something so vulnerable out into the world and, and then kind of waiting for people to, to react to it, you know, and you're like, will they react positively, negatively, indifferent, you know, which is almost worse than mm, anything. And, ask, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I there's a part of me that really hates that I get wrapped up or or caught in the spiral of that and I, I don't want to be uh I, I want to be able to feel uh very strongly in my own work and to not really let uh the buzz of everything or the the idea of this sort of it's not even the reaction so much as this idea of like deep self-actualization and constant work and like making you making sure you are maximizing your potential you're maximizing you are reaching the most amount are you doing enough you know if you're not exhausted lying on the floor uh <laughs> you know absolutely like spent of all your emotional resources you really haven't done enough for your art and for your uh for your project and i i just i found myself i was like i don't really believe in that i i and um i wanted to find a way to be creative and do something that speaks to me in whatever form that is that doesn't rely on those things and it doesn't buy into that and it's not part of this you know <laughs> there's a lot of like a weird structure to this industry where it's like you feel like you have to be taking off this this checklist of like are you doing this are you doing that and everyone will tell you what what the right things to do are and I just don't really feel like interested anymore um for because of the year that I had last year as well especially like I don't feel interested in participating in that anymore does that make sense yeah and so does it feel like a weight off your shoulders since you maybe came to that decision and since you put out the statement on Instagram, on social media, that you were going to finish it? Does it feel like, ah, oh, relief? Yes. <laughs> Actually, is really exciting. I feel really proud. Instead of kind of having this sort of essence of like beating myself up about what's coming next or being, not even being so, but like being nervous or anxious about what's coming next. I now get to reflect and go, God, I like I put out two records that I feel deeply proud of. Uh, I got to work with the best people on them. I got to express something like deeply vulnerable, uh, you know, really put out like a lot of, of personal work and, and have people respond to that. And that really means like, the world to me like that was that is amazing and um there was a long time when I really felt like I couldn't give myself any kudos for what I was achieving um and now I get to be like yeah no I was good happy <laughs> <laughs> before we get to the end of Nishiru uh you did release an album Emotionally Magnificent uh, a couple of months ago towards the tail end of 2023 we're gonna talk through the tracks on the album first of all where does the name Emotionally Magnificent come from it's a great title <laughs> uh Emotionally Magnificent uh comes from The Office oh <laughs> The U.S. office? The U.S. office. Uh, a great comfort watch. Yes. Uh, Any time I've been in any way anxious or depressed in my life, I, I re-watch The Office. Um, it's just always there. It's just always on Netflix. It's just, uh, you it's, know, 
two seconds away. It's present. It's an easy watch. It's just, you know, it helps me sleep. I've, I've rewatched The Office. I've watched The Office 11 times <laughs> over, which is a bit mad. Um, Even those later series, they're a bit ropey now. They are. That's when I start, like, doing my laundry and stuff, you yeah, know. I'm yeah. just, like, doing stuff in the background while it's going on. There, It is a bit ropey. But it's just, like, I feel like I have to finish the whole cycle <laughs> before I before can start can again. It. I can't dip in. I'm like, oh, I got to do the whole thing. Which character says emotionally magnificent? <laughs> Michael Scott. Michael. Oh, okay. There's a there's a bit there's an episode where um God that his partner or his his, his sort of girlfriend comes back and she's had um a, like a breast augmentation and um and he gets back together with her because of it and uh, he, he says it's the opposite of shallow it's emotionally magnificent <laughs> and I thought that phrase was kind of amazing <laughs> and and I thought that it kind of related to because I'd been going to yeah I've been doing therapy and I've been working through a lot of stuff and um you know making like doing all this work making all this progress and I was like kind of thinking like oh so is that what happens when we finish therapy like do we become like emotionally magnificent have we <laughs> ascended yeah um and I just thought that was a kind of nice title for on top of the work that I'd put together. So the first track on the album is Sick Girlfriend. This is the title of your EP from early 2020. We talked around then as yes. well, around that time. I was listening back and uh, yeah, just a lot of questions of how are you doing during COVID? So <laughs> won't go yeah. too much into into the COVID times. But did you have the plan for the album back then when you were releasing this EP? Or when did you decide, let's think about an album, let's subsume these tracks into the album and try yeah. to make it a longer project? I didn't actually. Um, when I put out that EP, I, I, I wasn't um, thinking about properly like putting it together with an album that that was definitely something that came later um when I wrote that ba those batch of songs you know and I obviously we talked about the the EP then but it was all around sort of my mental health and around that you know the anxiety and depression that I was experiencing and and also trying to navigate music with that and also being a woman and there was all these things that I was kind of um wading my way through I guess after that I realized there was more sort of after more, putting out the EP after bringing out the EP I felt there was a few more things that I felt like I wanted to add mm. <laughs> you know and uh, nobody can make me do which is another track later was was a definite part of that uh, series of songs and so I, I feel like um yeah I didn't know that I was going to kind of write that record the record was definitely written in covid afterwards except for like ocean which came which was also written earlier sick girlfriend yeah that was a that was a really fun but dark song to write mm. <laughs> it takes you on a journey as well and i guess it is setting up the themes of the album you say in the press release that it's basically about the trope of the manic pixie dream girl and how that's exploited sexualized or slandered I mean that's what you're kind of saying I'm guessing about like the music industry as a whole this is what it wants you to be sort of a thing yeah I think that there is this I mean we we grow up consuming a huge amount of media that sort of um eroticizes uh, mental health in, in women. I mean, if you look at things like um, some of the most tragic ones, is like you, look, you watch Betty Blue, and it is, uh, it's, which is a French movie about a, um, 
partnership between someone who's um, bipolar. Well, I'm not going to go into the internet, but it's it's another kind of um, example of sort of how there's this this sort of idea of like almost like taking the elements of what is erotic or attractive or you know serves almost like a cathartic purpose in women who have mental health issues and then sort of not wanting to deal with the reality and um i i hated this sort of uh this fantasy that exists uh, existed around that and uh i wanted to write about how the reality is not fun <laughs> you got, you know if you're if you're going out with someone and you, or if you're experiencing you know a breakdown um the that is a very real experience and a very intimate and, and really tough experience um and uh you know you hear all these sort of offhand comments even when you're younger of like you know the crazy crazy girl or like you know or wild or whatever or this and it's so reductive and i just I felt so angry about it <laughs> and uh, I ended up writing a sick girlfriend about that from the perspective of somebody who was going out with someone who had those um, issues and um, sort of ends up sort of facing the reality of what that looks like. It's not sexy and it's uh, quite consuming and I, that's how I felt when I was having my breakdown. Has it changed much from the EP version or is it pretty much the exact same song? Did you re-record it sort of a thing for the album? No, we didn't re-record it. We did a little bit of a mix on it and then remastered it. But it's it's pretty much the same. I, I really liked the original and we, we'd recorded the, the drums in Arid, which uh, was in the bottom of D-Light Studios and that room was really, really great for the drum sound and just really wanted to have that same sound go go through it. Track two is Black Hole. Do you want to tell me about this? Uh, Black Hole, yes. Uh, my only disco track. <laughs> when we were we were kind of uh, putting this together, like the original version of Black Hole is so slow and sad. It's it's really really um, <laughs> very very soft, mournful version. And then me and uh, Liam, my producer, were kind of talking about like gonna transform this and he was like well we have to we were both wanted to do something more kind of intricate and upbeat and i was like well just like make like a fucking indie disco song yeah, yeah. And i was like yes again and it's kind of all about the drums i think isn't it yes it is it's so and it it ended up being so fun and obviously re-entrench it was re-entrench and 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 dan fox playing pretty much all the instruments on this and re-entrench with the with the synths on this is just brilliant it's so it's so cool and a layered this one is is sort of just a bit of a a pretty run-of-the-mill mournful breakup i want you back song you know was there something that you didn't you didn't want the album to sound mournful or sad you wanted it to be more upbeat that you decided that you didn't want that kind of original version of black hole I think I wanted to try things that were not in my wheelhouse. Ah. I mean that this whole album get out of your comfort zone. Exactly. Like this whole record, there's a lot of stuff on it that um even though, you know, there's definitely stuff that's reminiscent of the first record, I it was a lot more of a punt and a lot more experimenting, uh, and trying new things. And this one in particular was just like 
there's a wonderful thing that happens when you do something that you haven't done before you know you're sitting there in the studio and you're going is this good (laughs) (laughs) this is did we make a terrible mistake and there was this moment when i remember we were like listening back to black hole i was like no it's good is it good (laughs) no it's good is it (laughs) (laughs) when when do you decide like yeah it is good (laughs) Yeah, you have to wait like two months after you've mixed it because your ears don't work. Yeah. <laughs> you've listened to it too much that you can't even like process the sound of the tracks anymore. You have to sit back and go like, okay, ear bath for like a month. Uh, but um, and it ends up, you know, it's one of my favorite songs. It's one of my favorite ones to do live because it's 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 such a fun, upbeat kind of dancey song. Nobody can make me do what I don't want to is track number three. Is this kind of a continuation of the themes that are in the first one? It's kind of about the record industry, music industry. Um, well, n- nobody. It's definitely it's definitely on the mental health thing, and I mean, there's there's probably elements that kind of you know bleed into that. But it's basically about when I was having like such i was had really severe anxiety that there was a period where i just couldn't leave the house and um i felt like all of these days were just sort of melding into each other and you know everything seemed the same and nothing was changing and i felt very paralyzed and i felt like I, i wasn't able to you know you have all these sort of aspirations and and not like big aspirations but you're like I'm going to read a book. <laughs> I'm going to sew something, maybe. I don't know. Like, uh, you have all these sort of, like, feel like you should be sort of maximizing your time and, and, and really kind of, like, leaning into the most singular of human experiences, like, every day. Like, please, like, show me some nature. Let me learn something. And then you have these period of time when you're you're crippled with depression or anxiety and you just can't do anything other than watch the office and <laughs> lie down um and there's a lot of people you know around you uh, trying to be very helpful to to be like do you go out and you know do they try this and do that and da, da, da. and there's a resistance to that and and I wrote about that sort of resistance you know just kind of going like I I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I will just watch the days go by and I will just watch everything sort of fade um fade away and um I don't know it was just kind of encapsulating those that moment and that feeling. Yeah, that's something that kind of anxiety and self-doubt we we did talk about it in that first interview back in 2020, but when you're writing this song is this months removed from it and you're looking back on it or is it while you're in that kind of black hole for want of a better word uh that you're trying to channel it into like creativity or making music or something i wrote it probably at the tail end of that period i find it very challenging to usually to write things in the midst of a feeling if it's especially if it's like an intense feeling like that uh i need to have a little bit of distance or to feel like i i know i've processed it a little bit to be able to to write it and let it come out it it kind of just comes out naturally like after that sometimes it's like i always feel with writing it's like you very rarely consciously sit down to write something specific like i you know i go with a mood or a feeling 
and then I write a song and then I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what that's what I wanted to write about. And then you kind of go, oh, that's really interesting and reflect on that. But it's it's usually quite subconscious, you know, the way it kind of comes out for me anyway. Do you think there's any songs on this album that you can think of that were written like I'm going to sit down and write this song and then it magically I, appears? The only one that I think was probably quite consciously written was probably Sick Girlfriend because oh, I okay, really was um, feeling like I want to write about this specific thing. I I I'm, I have a feeling and I, I am angry about something and I want to I want to write about it. is Future Ghost. This also featured on Litany of Failures, Volume 4, which I reviewed for the Thin Air, and I think I picked out this song as well, probably because it sounded different to the other tracks around it. Is the sound of this album, of like the whole Nishiru project, something that you think about? I mean, we talked about the doing the disco track earlier. Are you kind of thinking, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that kind of a sound? Um, there was definitely references when I came into this record that were different to the first record when I we did the first record you know I was very I was listening to a lot of early like PJ Harvey I was listening to like uh, The Cure The Pixies a lot of those quite raw almost like uh, Steve Albini-esque kind of um, recordings and you know something quite dark and, and that really influenced it and when I came in for this, I was kind of really into Sharon Van Etten's record. I was really obsessed with Jupiter 4, and I really wanted to kind of find that sort of, that song, like that some some sort of uh, element that I could like create something that sort of felt with, had the same mood. And then I was also like really wanted to bring it, because I'm a huge Beck fan, I'm like a massive Beck fan, and I always have been. and. I wanted to find ways to kind of bring those influences in and, you know, listening to songs like uh, like Beautiful Way and even like <laughs> Tropicalia, you know, like stuff off, like basically like um, uh, stuff off Mutations and, and stuff off um, uh, Olay and there was, there was I, I loved how he kind of brought in different sort of like weird percussive bits and there was so many kind of weirdly layered uh stuff on there and so that that definitely became part of it and i think future ghost in particular like there's a couple of in my head like my my attempt (laughs) on this record to write a beck song uh which was not conscious but to like try to create a 
it in the studio to try to like take influences from it was Sacred Cow. But there's definitely elements on uh, Future Ghost of that as well and kind of wanting to find that style of production from that time. I guess Beck is a good touchstone just because he doesn't have one definable sound either, does he? He kind of changes it up maybe when he gets bored with it, maybe when he thinks that the audience might get bored of it as well. Well, that's it. I, I That's what I really loved. <laughs> it's like the Futurama thing of like he, uh, he uh, transcends genres as he invents them. And uh, mm. <laughs> I like that there's so much variety in his work and he's not scared about having a thread throughout everything you know to tie it all together he will do there will be such a such a real kind of smorgasbord of things going on in in a back record especially those earlier back records when we go to the studio we usually do like skeleton tracks and then kind of work it out as we're in there and it feels like very intuitive to let the song kind of do what it wants to do you know um instead of kind of we we don't do a huge amount of pre-production going in because it's really fun to just sort of experiment when you're in there and sort of see what feels right Uh, and you know with with musicians like Rian and, and Dan you really have that luxury because you've got like you know not only two phenomenal musicians but two producers as well so you're really able to trust fall into their talent and their taste and say okay well will we try this and you sit there and go like well let's try this and it's uh it's really nice uh, and, and very very easy with uh, the variety of sounds on the record it feels like every song we kind of allowed it to kind of find its find itself and develop and uh, then it ended up being quite varied, <laughs> naturally. Track five is Whoever. Do you want to tell me about that song? Whoever was sort of written about a sense of sort of longing and becoming some, like almost like losing yourself in the fantasy of, of someone else being someone else, you know, projecting a fantasy onto somebody. Um, and then um, we went to record it. We wanted to create something that sounded very sort of like industrial Berlin sex club, like like Madonna meets that. Yeah. <laughs> um, wanted something that felt like you know dark and gritty and had like almost like industrial machine noises in it and like all the heavy breathing and. Um, and it was a really fun song <laughs> to make, uh, though deeply. I remember being we were doing the vocals for this track in Stony Batter in the studio, and I had to do all the breathing, you know, for it to sample. <laughs> it was like the exact time that I think Bob Gallagher and someone else just like came into the studio and just watched me do like a load of like erotic heavy breathing for five <laughs> minutes. I was like, this is so embarrassing. Right. <laughs> oh my God. You've got a good breathing game, so yeah. Well, apparently, you know, <laughs> well, listen to the record and you could tell me if my breathing game is all right. <laughs> Razor Sharp Shirt is track number six. I guess maybe we'll talk about who you worked with on the album. You've mentioned uh, Dan and Rian already. Have you worked with them? before was it specifically for this that you've worked i worked with them for sick girlfriend ep um so they played on 
that Dan played bass, Rian played uh, drums, and then um, my guitarist for a long time, Carl Tobin, played guitar for those tracks. Yeah, then it just ended up being Rian and Dan playing everything for the rest of the tracks on the record. Um, Is it just like they're studio whizzes? You can kind of do, give them anything and they'll... Anything. Yeah. They're just both unbelievably talented um, and so fun. To, and like, you know, they're friends. So it's like oh, okay. really handy. You know, <laughs> me and me and Dan used to live together. Uh, like, so we were used to be housemates. And then Rian, I met through uh, Salty Dog and we just sort of became friends and we played together and, and through, we kind of became friends through the sick girlfriend thing. So it was then it was like really easy to then have both of them and then it was up in the studio and it was funny because it was Rian, Dan, me, Liam Mavani, Jamie Highland from Mail assisting um, on the record and Emmett White who's in Yard as well was there helping out so it was like a bunch of us just uh, you know in lockdown in the tail end of lockdown for the first time being in a room with like a few other people just like having a great time just like really enjoying this very fun experience having not got to do it in so long and it was a wonderful thing to get to make those you know those tracks with friends who you know I respect and and, you know care about. Is that kind of how you look at the album that maybe lyrically it's maybe a little bit tougher to think about but actually recording it and making the music side of it is like a fun time to look back on because you're you're hanging out with them in the studio. Yeah also I just I love recording I mean if if that was just the whole gig I'd be like this is amazing um being in the studio with you know people who are exceptionally talented watching you breathing <laughs> watching me breathe <laughs> everybody gather around um but you know just sitting there like waking up in the morning and like you know making coffee and being like well what are we gonna do like what sounds are we gonna make today and what are we gonna track like that's so joyful and so fun and doing it with people that you trust is exceptionally a good time the wonderful grace of it is like there's no in that sort of situation there's no arguments about anything because it's like everybody just wants to do what sounds good and what feels right and you're just throwing ideas out and everyone's like yeah let's give that a go <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I've talked to like a good few people who have recorded with Dan Fox and or Rian Trench and I've only heard them rave about them just because of the way they work the they just seem receptive to ideas like you say you know just happy to try whatever they're so such uh, enthusiastic people and and really fun and very open and um yeah I, I like it's a great thing in a creative environment like that to trust people implicitly um you know that's a real luxury I think in this in this uh in this gig was there anything was there anybody saying no or I don't like that during the process or was it was it all like positivity it sounds like it's just like (laughs) the best experience uh no no uh I I don't think so I think maybe like one time I was like I don't know if that's the right vibe for that thing but like to be honest like you know all of the recording was like really fun and then you you work it all out and mix anyway like you know the way we were working was you know throwing a lot of stuff at the wall being you know very kind of experimental trying a lot of different things and then 
taking all of that down and, and shaping it and paring it back and and kind of, uh, you know, refining it. So, you know, lots of people like to work a different way where they, they have an idea, they do the pre-production, they go in, they do it, and then it's like a real tight turnaround for mixing. My mixing process takes a long time. <laughs> as long as the recording itself, it, it's a lot of mixing. Track seven is Silent Halls. Uh, I love the sound of this, the way it kind of builds to, I think, a joyous chorus. Uh, this was another fun one to, to make. This is a very fun one to make. Like, there's, <laughs> I think it's like, you know, as a person who doesn't really do so many, like, three chord majors, uh, this is a really fun, like, open rock <laughs> tune. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, very, like, going back to the the parts of me that like the primitives and, and stuff like that you know ravenettes or something um just like a, a really sort of fun um indie rock tune i mean it was it it's a the original version of this more, mournful was again? sad could you believe it <laughs> oh my god it's like i know i know it's gonna shock you but it was actually quite sad um but it was more kind of um We'd done the demo for it, and it was like this sort of more kind of um, muted, you know, chords with like this eerie 80s synth going over it. Then we kind of got into it. It was like it just didn't really work. Like it was, it was nice, but it you couldn't. It didn't feel like it could expand or match the kind of energy of what everything else was doing. And then so we just opened up the chords, and then it was like, oh my god, this is actually like. A banger we can do this <laughs> we can just have a really fun time making this um i mean lyrically it's about like <laughs> you know um you know wanting to be there for or talking about the experience of coming out after like being you know in a mental health facility and having like you know having to re uh readjust to to life um, but you know, a real kick in rock song to to give <laughs> to to uh, do the background of it. 
Sacred Cow is a track that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you say in the press release that it is your old lay era Beck song. You also say it's a satirical take on the notion of the sacred cow. In this context, it's referring to someone who you see as perfect or as a white knight figure. It's about the idea of yeah, holding someone up and, and feeling like they're going to save you. Uh, and then working out whether you whether you feel like you're worthy of being saved or want to be saved by this um, person or whatever that appears to be quite perfect and without blemishes and um, I I definitely kind of I'm a deep overthinker and in a lot of my work I just work out <laughs> All of these things. And at the time, I, I'd met somebody who I thought who was offering me a lot of things and was um, presenting a lot of very, very um, exciting and interesting prospects. Um, and I was trying to work out whether it was real, whether I felt like I wanted it, uh, whether I felt like I could handle it. And I kind of wrote that song about it. Um, and then I kind of wanted to have a lot of fun with the production of that and really lean into that sort of layer of Beck kind of thing and get some slide guitar out. It's probably my favourite track on the album. It was my favourite one to make. When I wrote it, it, was, it felt different to anything that I had written before. I remember sitting there at the desk and finishing it and kind of going like, yeah, I really, this, you, sometimes you finish a song and you're like, this is going on the record, like, there's no doubt, like, this is, we're going to find a way to make this work. And it's, it's a, it was a really tricky one when it was acoustic, because it just sounded really wonky, so it needed so much to, like, really survive and live as a, as a track. <laughs> so you have to, like, sit down and go, like, no, no, like, don't worry, once, once we lay all this shit down, it's, it's, I believe in this song. So it was kind of my like, I believe in this song, this is this is gonna be good.
is the demoing side does do all of your songs kind of just start with you and an acoustic guitar trying to figure out the song yeah like I do usually like sort of two sets of demos so I'll do like one set of demos that are just me and the guitar and then I'll kind of show it to a couple of people show it to Liam and um, you know a couple other musicians and I'll I say like, what do you think of this? You know, or and usually someone who's not a musician as well, because I need to like get an idea of like someone who's not having a musician brain, like whether it has any legs. Uh, and so I think it's good to get a little bit of feedback from people you trust. But uh, yeah, I usually do acoustic demos, and then I'll go off with um, Jamie um, and um, make some other um, demos. Uh, that are a little bit more intricate or might have like an electric on it or like might kind of, you know, put a bit of distortion or kind of have a bit of synth on it so it kind of can see where the song might kind of go and then you kind of work it from there. And did you have many demos for the album in terms of like other songs that you didn't use? Did you have like dozens and dozens or was it a tight uh, 11 tracks? (laughs) I'm not a prolific writer. (laughs) So I I would love to be the kind of person that turns up and is like, here's 30 songs. Let's pick 10. Um, I had like maybe four extra songs, I think um for maybe four or five and and they and to be honest i i knew what songs were going to go on the record um but i just sort of threw the extra like demos in there just so that i could like get a sense from liam and from other people like what the compare if they had the same feeling you know like bouncing off those tracks going like actually like you know in case there was one that I just didn't recognize was any good or I didn't feel confident about and it was actually good because that's happened to me before where I've been like this song sucks and they've been like no it doesn't I'm like are you sure <laughs> <laughs> like almost perfect which is a rec was a song off my first record which uh, a lot of people li- really like and, and I, I really like too but when I, I, I went to put it on the record I was like this is too mushy it's a mushy song I don't want to put this mushy song on here and I was like no you should put that song on it and I'm like oh okay alright fine people liked it so sometimes that happens um, but I didn't yeah it was tight I didn't have loads of songs Falling Stars is track number nine you say that it's about watching all these talented people around me hitting the wall and leaving music because it's just too hard to keep going again something that we kind of talked about at the start this idea of like the music industry and the weight that it puts on your shoulder I mean I think that it's harder than ever for bands you know the amount of work that you have to do social media trying to sell your gigs trying to I don't know be on constantly and like is that how you felt around the idea of ending it that it was it was almost too much you're being asked to do whereas you enjoy being in the studio if it was just that you'd be happy but it's all the extra stuff that's almost like too much yeah I mean it's a real doing this is a real labor of love anyway um outside of all of that sort of superfluous stuff um and I really do kind of <sighs> I don't want to say I believe a lot of it is superfluous, but in in ways, for a lot of us, it is. Um, I I was really I'm really sad to see so many bands that I I thought were great feel that pressure and like you know walk away from it. And not you know for me like I I'm quite happy to to walk away at this point, and I feel very 
excited about the prospect, but I know that there's a lot of people who didn't feel excited about it and and that's sort of devastating because they're so such amazing musicians and I was trying to say this on John's show the other day where it was like I think a lot of people who have these great projects think that once they stop as well that um they don't exist anymore and that people don't listen to their work anymore but that's not true you know I still listen to so many artists that aren't active anymore and I still enjoy the work so much and and they're there, you know, they're there in the archive and that that work lives forever, you know, that exists forever and that's the great thing about art. It is a really challenging time and I I work in the music industry side as well as, you know, as a creative um, and it's so much pressure and, you know, I see so many like, you know, especially coming up now and and being a band and all the things you feel you have to do and all the money you have to invest and all the things that you're like constantly working to kind of push I mean pushing like your social media numbers and your Spotify and trying to get playlisted I mean when I came out that playlisting thing just wasn't as much of a thing you know um but as now in 10 years ago or 10 years probably, ago yeah. yeah like playlisting didn't exist in the same way as it does now and um, and and now you kind of hear that it is kind of like oh if i just have one song that's on a playlist exactly but then it's like it's not like you're gonna make millions out of it you might make enough for a couple of months or everything but you know what it's not even about for a lot of people it's like you know especially emerging brands it's not even about it something being lucrative it's about validation because there's this we're, we're swimming in this world of so many of us musicians that um there's this idea that if you get a certain amount of things and i think we've all got swept up into this if you hit this certain amount of accolades that legitimizes you as an artist and people will like oh you are an artist now but you're just an artist anyway you know and that's that that was a weird kind of thing that hit me you know which was just like i don't have to prove anything to anyone you know getting to the point where you just feel like i don't have to prove anything to anyone that I am an artist and that I make work like I just do. But when you're young and you're in the industry, you do. You feel like you have to prove something and you feel you have to go to all the things and you have to meet all the people and you have to be constantly active and you have to be constantly pushing and you're hustling to get to this 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 height. And it's a wonderful thing, you know, seeing people with talent like get their props and like and, and achieve and that's like has so wonderful but it's it's an awful thing to feel like it's a that art is a game of comparison and that we're constantly like looking at you know this race where we're like shoulder to shoulder or people are ahead or you feel behind and it's art's not a race and, and art's not a ladder it just you're there creating something you're you're making something because you're trying to share something you know some sort of perspective, some sort of part of yourself, some sort of essence of your individuality that may connect with other people. And um, when I kind of like realized that, that it was almost just like, you know, you just don't want to, you're like, oh, I'm just not in the race anymore. Like I don't, (laughs) I'm going to the concession stand. Like I've got it, I'm getting out. Like, because you're like, this is just, it's not pointless, but it's just like, this is a mirage. It's an illusion. Yeah, I think a lot of bands starting out 
uh, like wouldn't feel like that. I think that they do have that aspiration, that dream of hitting it. And it is only maybe after you've released an album or two albums or however many albums where you do finally decide maybe that the work is the thing sort of a thing and that will live forever and like a song will come song kind of success will kind of come and go but uh did you say that you worked in you work in the music industry yes what do you do what do you do don't mind me i work in i work in uh music festivals so i work uh in latitude and electric picnic oh wow uh so i'm a production manager in latitude and electric picnic um do you enjoy that side of it I actually love that side of it because it's um, <laughs> it's all about like team, you know, you're all working together to try to make a great experience for other people. And, and all just really like nice. music lovers as well. And it's all music lovers. and It's all, you know, musicians and everyone's really wonderful. And I'm very lucky, like 10 years ago when I started, um, you know, I met the kind of the people who would who would be like my best friends you know that's where I met everybody it's where I met Dan Fox and it's where I met Jamie and it's where I met like Liam you know like all of those people I met through that um so uh it's given me a huge amount of my life and it's it also changed the direction of my life which was crazy you can't tell me who's headlining Electric Picnic or anything like that this year, I no? don't know <laughs> <laughs> they don't tell me anything <laughs> uh we're on to track number 10 now ocean coming to the end of the album as well i don't know if i asked you this earlier but did you know when you were recording the album that it would be your last album that you're now going going out on this one i didn't no i think when i was recording it i i was also i was signed to this uh american label as well and so i was sort of in the throes of like seeing what might happen I think at the back of my head, it had been something that I, there was part of me that was just like, I don't really know in this version of myself or in this incarnation that I, what I really have left to say or what I really want to say. I, And as time went on, when I recorded, like I was finding myself like just not being compelled to write in the way that I normally would. And, um, and I, I found myself kind of drifting away from this. And I, I so I didn't know when I recorded it, but it was definitely moments were starting to kind of eke out where it felt like that I was slowly coming to that conclusion. And so the album came out at the end of October. Have you found yourself writing or kind of maybe being creative musically or otherwise in the months since or has it been nice kind of not doing any of that um it's been nice taking a bit of a break I think I do feel weirdly I I feel like weirdly ready to be creative in a different way um once I feel like this is wrapped um it's been a obviously like you know the last few months were a very difficult time to kind of be creative my obviously my dad passed away two weeks before the record came out which was a very difficult way to to do this uh and and something I I really wasn't expecting so sometimes in those in those periods I think of intense overwhelming emotion and grief uh it is really hard to access that part of yourself that wants to be creative and wants to kind of go there because you're just processing so much and I I feel like I'm still processing so much but I'm 
I do feel like I'm coming to a, a point where I, I can be actively creative again in some way. California is a closing track. This is my second favorite track like on, on the record. Oh, what's your favorite track? Sacred Cow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, I went to LA on a trip with an ex and um, it was sort of like towards the end of our sort of relationship and I, I wrote this song um about it about sort of like the idea of like feeling sort of disconnected you know loving someone a lot but not feeling completely present and then making that decision to to leave a relationship um and the hope that you're going to find like find not another person but find yourself and feel like that was the right decision to make and I wanted it to be a very hopeful song that is more about like sort of finding your way than you know any other sort of like break breakup song uh because I, I still really care about and respect that person you know but yeah, it was a really beautiful thing to record and it felt very special. I remember sitting there in the studio and we were laying down the piano and and, and Dan Fox was playing it. And I, I, and I was just crying because it just sounded so beautiful. And um, then getting Rian to go in and play the sax. I was like, play sax on this. And he was like, why? And I'm like, just do it. <laughs> play free jazz sax <laughs> all right steely dad <laughs> i just this song in particular came together in a way that just felt very magic and and very ethereal and and it made me very emotional and it felt like the perfect closer for the album because it is a hopeful song and it, it makes me feel hope when i hear it great uh so you're gonna be are you gonna be playing the album in full at the Workman's Club, have you thought about that? Yes, we will play, I'm pretty sure, all of the album. We may leave off one track, but we'll be playing that and then some of Lilith. And then there's going to be guests as well. So it is going to be a long set. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, that's what's so hot right now in the music industry, yeah. isn't it? These long three hour, three yeah. and a half hour sets. That's it. I'm Bruce Springsteen. It's the Bruce Springsteen of uh, February over here. <laughs> Well, uh, congrats on the album. It's called Emotionally Magnificent. Congrats on, I guess, the last 10 years of Nisha Roo oh, as thank well. Thank you very and much. And hopefully we'll talk again. Hopefully it's not the last time that you'll be making music. Uh, well, who, who, who knows? <laughs> we'll see. We'll <laughs> yeah. see. To be continued. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.